Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Barry Eisler, whose latest novel is The Killer Collective. Barry Eisler has written 15 novels in all, 16 because the new one is finished. Ten of them feature a former assassin named John Rain. Two of them feature a black ops operative named Ben Trevin. Two feature Livia Lone, a detective. And there's a standalone in there as well called The God's Eye View. These books are spy novels, thrillers, but in fact, there's a political context to all of them, which we'll talk about. Barry Eisler spent three years in a covert position in the CIA's Directorate of Operations. is an attorney, tech attorney, black belt, works on Human Rights Watch, Freedom of the Press. And I do want to ask you a little bit about Venezuela because I have absolutely no idea what's really going on there. I don't trust the mainstream media. Maybe you have some insights. Why would you? What's going on from your perspective, given the fact that We hear all of these things from the media, but understanding that the people behind American involvement are people like Bolton and Abrams, who are the neocons we would trust the least. It's funny that you asked me this because just this morning I I retweeted something uh, I came across on Glenn Greenwald's Twitter feed. And in retweeting it, what I said is to believe that our interest in Venezuela is humanitarian. You have to ignore an unbelievable amount of history, a shocking number of contradictions, such as our support for dictatorial regimes in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the Philippines, etc. And you also have to ignore who are the architects of this pressure we're putting on Venezuela to change the government there, and that would be Donald Trump. Elliot Abrams and John Bolton. So at a minimum, if you want to make an argument that changing the government, forcibly changing the government in Venezuela is in America's interest, I wouldn't agree with you, but you could at least make that argument coherently. But to suggest that the people behind this policy are doing it because they care about Venezuelan people, that's just mad. That's not a serious argument. It's, it's delusional or propagandistic. Barry Eisler. You spent those years, you were quite young, working at the CIA. It's my understanding that when we talk CIA, we're actually talking about two different things. We're talking about covert operations and we're talking about intelligence. Is that correct? Uh, Yeah, you could make that basic distinction between the people who gather information, intelligence on the one hand, who people we think of typically think of as spies, and the analysts on the other, the people who take that secret, illicitly acquired information and try to make sense of it. And then there's also a military, a paramilitary side, which is also somewhat distinct even from the first two. 
Well, can you talk about those years now? Or Yeah, uh, it was an interesting time. I spent about three years there from 1989 to 92 in a covert position. I was in what at the time was called the Directorate of Operations. I think it's been renamed the National Clandestine Service since 9-11. Always change the names of things to make them sound fresh, even if nothing else changes. Mostly it was training. People ask me, uh, why did you get out? Did you, did you assassinate one person too many or participate in one too many coups and your conscience bothered you? It wasn't anything uh, nearly as exciting as that. It's a huge, the CIA is a huge bureaucracy. People tend to envision it as they've seen it in movies like the Bourne movies, for example, where it's this extremely squared away, Swiss watch level, high tech, very efficient organization. But it's not really like that. It's a government bureaucracy. And the better way to understand the CIA is not to compare it to movies, but to compare it to, say, the DMV or the post office, which are other government agencies, the ones that people have a little more real world familiarity with. I think in retrospect, it's clear to me that I have a somewhat entrepreneurial personality. I like to be in charge of my own stuff. And working for a bureaucracy as massive as the U.S. government or even smaller part of it, the CIA, was frustrating for me in a lot of ways. Well, that was also the era when Bush gave way to Clinton, which was a very different era as well. Yeah, that's true. When I was at CIA, the Berlin Wall came down. So that was my time there. It was an exciting time. When you're writing books like Killer Collective, does any of that history really play a role or has the CIA and covert ops changed so much in the intervening decades? So that's a really good question. When trying to analyze something, you have to understand both the similarities to something more familiar and also the differences. Some things are still similar. As you say, the, um, the organization is divided, very generally speaking, into ops and analysis, and then, of course, the military arm, which has been beefed up hugely since 9-11. But certain things have changed, things that interest me a lot. I'll tell you just one of them as an example for how things have changed generally. When I was writing my third book in 2004, so this is not too far into the global war on terror, the GWAT, and actually I was working on the book in 2003. At the time, America used a drone. It was a kind of prototype for what became the Predator drone to blow up a Jeep in Yemen, a Jeep that had an American citizen on it. And not only was this done, but the CIA took a public bow for it. And there was no protest in America about the CIA with no due process killing an American citizen. I could certainly get into the rights and wrongs and pros and cons and all that sort of thing of the U.S. government extrajudicially dealing with American citizens, whether dealing with them through indefinite imprisonment without charge, trial, and, or conviction on the one hand, or assassinating them on the other. But leaving that aside for just one moment, what interested me as a novelist about that event was, wow, the rules have changed. The expectations have changed. The zeitgeist is different. And the CIA is doing this stuff now with so much public support that they're actually bragging about it. And so that became the basis for some plot points in what became my third book, Winner Take All. Which was originally called? Originally called, what did they, it was Rain something, Rainstorm. <laughs> they were all rain pun titles that the publisher liked and that I always hated. Have you kept up and how can you keep up with 
the technology, with the way that the CIA operates internally, yeah. externally? I read a lot. I still have some friends who, one of whom graduated, not graduated, I, who I graduated with, who retired recently after close to 30 years of service. And I can always go to those people, but I don't want to fetishize the inside sources because that's part of the problem with our whole intelligence apparatus in the first place. The fetishization of secret information and the downgrading of what's available to the public. So the information that's available to the public, if you read between the lines, is tremendously useful, whether for journalists or novelists or anyone who's trying to understand what the U.S. government is really up to behind the massive wall of secrecy it's created. What are some of those sources? Well, one great one would be someone like Edward Snowden. And I'm thinking here specifically of my book, The God's Eye View, which you mentioned a little while ago. When I got the idea for this book, I had it in mind that the U.S. government was running a top secret, compartmented, vast program of domestic surveillance. And I liked the idea. It seemed to flow from some of the things I'd been reading about just in the media generally. There's no doubt that post 9-11, uh, James Risen had his scoop, which in the New York Times suppressed until after the 2004 election about how the Bush administration had turned the NSA's uh, eavesdropping capabilities onto the American public. So there were things you could see and dots you could connect. And that's what I was doing. When I got the idea for something that brought all this together and speculated about what was going on below the waterline. And I was working on that idea when Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras started reporting in The Guardian on what became the Snowden revelations. This is in June 2013. And it was an interesting experience for me because up until that point, I was afraid that what I had in mind for this domestic surveillance program would be too much. It would be hard to support. And I like to keep everything in my novels as real and realistic as I can. So I, I was thinking, is this too much? I mean, is this really something people are going to buy? And then when Greenwald and Poitras started reporting on uh, the Snowden documents, I realized I hadn't taken it far enough. It was much worse even than I had believed. So that would be just one example of all the reporting that's been done on the Snowden revelations is a tremendous public resource, and that's one of the things I tap into. Barry Eisler, it, it seems to me that we see above the waterline the terrible things that the Trump administration is doing. And I keep thinking, if that's what we're seeing that's right. above the waterline, what is going on below, and will we ever get a handle on it? We'll probably learn more in the fullness of time when it's not, it might be a very long time, but when it's not as scary as it is right now. It's funny that you brought this up because I was talking about it with my wife, Laura, just yesterday and upsetting her because uh, there's a lot of doom and gloom in the news. And I was listening just recently to a podcast I really like called Deconstructed, um, run by a journalist named Mehdi Hassan. And Hassan had some journalists on the show who were talking from fairly close acquaintance about Trump's disintegrating cognitive capabilities. And the first thing I thought, to your point, was, my God, if this is what we're hearing about right now, 
What are people who interact with him every day talking about? After all, it was uh, it was only after Reagan had left office that information started coming out about the fact that he was afflicted with Alzheimer's, especially during his second term. We know what McCabe was thinking about a year ago. Yeah, that's right. Rosenstein. I mean, we know what these people sure. were thinking. And we also know that, for better or worse, a number of people stayed in the administration quote, in order to protect us, and they're gone yeah, now. Yeah, you're talking about the guy, there was a, that anonymous the, person who wrote that New York Times op-ed. I, I'm not so persuaded by the person's claimed motivations. I think, you put, stick your name on this, go public, and I'll be a little bit more impressed. But yeah, um, this is actually a great example of exactly the kind of thing I do. We see patterns, call it dots that you want to connect, whatever, but there are data points, and using your imagination based on everything you know about human nature, politics, the world, whatever, you try to create more of a mosaic using those data points and trying to figure out, well, look, if this much public information is available about a president's disintegrating cognitive abilities, what is going on inside the White House itself with the people who interact with him every day and see this kind of stuff up close and personal? And the questions are really disturbing. But if you're a novelist, a thriller writer like I am, then it can also be kind of fun. And if you think about it carefully, you can come up with some fairly accurate predictions. The book I was mentioning a little while ago, Winner Take All, my uh, CIA co- operative, Tom Kamazaki, is talking about the fact that there's a terrorist hit list. Now, this is just something I intuited from what we were doing in Yemen. I said, okay, they didn't just blow these people up at random. It wasn't accidental. They were very proud of it. And they called them high-value targets and all that sort of stuff. So they must have some, so the CIA, the US government, must have some sort of a list of people that the government wants to assassinate. They, we don't call it assassination in America. Only bad countries do assassinations. We do targeted killings. We've got a whole nomenclature that I could go on for the rest of this interview about words that we reserve exclusively for others. Like, uh, for example, Russia has oligarchs and we have billionaires and primitive countries have tribes while well, we have factions and they have gulags while well, we have detention centers. They do wars and invasions while well, we only do military interventions. It, it, it just, it's endless and fascinating. But I realized, okay, there must be some sort of list. And there's a scene in the book where Kanazaki is explaining to some people that there's a terrorist hit list. And he says, of course, we don't refer to it as a terrorist hit list. That wouldn't be the done thing. And if anyone is ever called to testify in Congress, we don't want to have to talk about a hit list. Instead, what we call it is the international terrorist, uh, I forget exactly, but something matrix, the international terrorist threat matrix. And then about five years ago, give or take, the New York Times reported on the Obama administration's list, uh, which John Brennan, then uh, head of the CIA, was in charge of. And it was called the disposition matrix. And I thought, see, that's perfect. I got the word matrix right. Disposition, that's a nice anodyne word, could mean anything. And if you're thinking in in terms of what would the government do, what would they have substantively, but how would they try to obfuscate its existence by calling it something anodyne, you can come up with some fairly startling prescient calls, and that's one of the ones I came up with 10 years before the fact. Barry Eisler, let's talk about Killer Collective, which doesn't quite have the government intervention of these others. Killer Collective, the plot is driven more by my character, Livia Lone, who is a Seattle sex crimes detective who's not just investigating rapists, she's putting them in the ground. 
Livy's a really interesting character. She and her younger sister, Nassan, were trafficked to America when they were young girls. Uh, Livia has a lifetime of trauma. She's a survivor. And she sublimates that trauma and more by going after traffickers, rapists, child pornographers. She's, as one of my other characters, the Mossad operative Delilah sums her up as a zealot. And Delilah's not wrong. Livia is, at the outset of the book, investigating a child pornography ring that seems to lead back to the Secret Service. Some people come after Livia, who herself is quite tactically capable. They come after her intending to kill her as part of what is going to be a cover-up of what she has been investigating. But she kills the would-be killers, and through a variety of means, it, this starts to draw in my characters from other series. John Rain from the Rain uh, Natural Causes Assassin series. Rain is uh, half Japanese, half American assassin who's trying to retire. Sometimes I like to say Rain is trying to kill his way out of the killing business, which is a difficult proposition. Rain's partner, former Marine sniper Docs. Uh, his former lover, his now estranged lover, Delilah, the Mossad operative I mentioned a little while ago, and some characters from the Ben Trevin series, the Black Ops series. They all come together with this conspiracy to cover up a, a child pornography ring that is emanating from the Secret Service at the heart of it. When you mentioned the Secret Service porn ring, suddenly I keep thinking, well, what we've learned in the past couple of months is about the Jeffrey Epstein story right. and the sex slavery story involving the uh, owner of the New England Patriots. Yes. And I'm suddenly thinking, there's your extrapolation. So going back, when you came up with the idea of the Secret Service, that couldn't have been on your mind. What was on your mind? At the end of the book, as at the end of all my books, I've got author notes so that people can see what's fictional and what's not. The Secret Service has had a whole string of scandals, drunken agents, car, drunken car crashes, sex workers hired. So this is what I was talking about earlier where I'm like, we like to think of the Secret Service as this super squared away government agency filled with nothing but people dedicated to protecting the life of the president and some other high officials and their families. And I am sure that there are many such Secret Service individuals but the organization itself has had some problems over the years. So I started thinking what would happen if, um, if there were, let's call them some bad apples in the Secret Service, which has had some PR difficulties in the past. And what would happen if someone like Livy alone in the course of what was initially an unrelated investigation wound up following a trail that led to the Secret Service. Now, I would think there would be very powerful people intent on preventing that news from, uh, from reaching the public. It would be a huge black eye to the Secret Service, especially, this is exactly the one I'm taking these walks to figure out a plot point, but this is exactly how I was going, well, ooh, especially, not just given the, the Secret Service's history of scandals, but especially if there were reports that maybe went to the Justice Department, someone was accessing uh, child pornography on the Secret Service's um, local Wi-Fi network or from a work laptop or something like that. And maybe something got reported to the Justice Department. What would the Justice Department do? There'd be pressure coming from other parts of the government to quash this. We'll take care of this internally. And where have we seen this kind of thing 
to a degree that would be almost unimaginable if it weren't hardcore documented in the news, the Catholic Church. If you had told people before the revelations of pedophile priests and the institutional cover-up to prevent people from learning about not just these incidents, but how systemic it was. If this hadn't been reported in the most reputable and documented forms possible, it would be very difficult for most people, I think it's safe to say, to believe. But we know all this is a fact. Now, so again, looking at how institutions try to cover this stuff up, what little bit I knew about the Secret Service, what I know about human nature, a plot started to take shape. And where did the... uh Graham, the surrogate for an Eric Prince type character coming. Yeah, a lot of people say that. Well, as you know, Richard, all my characters are uh, any, fictional, any coinc- yeah. any any <laughs> yeah, any similarity to uh, actual people is coincidental. But I will say that everyone knows, or I shouldn't say everyone. If you if you read a lot about this kind of stuff as I do. You'll be aware that more and more traditional military functions have been turned over to the private sector. The The pace of this has been increasing since 9-11. There's a journalist whose work I very much admire named Jeremy Scahill. And Jeremy, some years ago, wrote a book called Blackwater, The Rise of the World's Most Powerful Mercenary Ar- Army. So I read that book, and that gave me a pretty good picture into uh, into just what's right there in the title. So it's become a thing in many of my books where functions are getting outsourced to military contractors. You, you mentioned Eric Prince. I, I would think that if Eric Prince were in the room, we would disagree about almost everything. But I, I think one thing we would agree about is what I just said, that more and more military functions have been absorbed by the private sector, by companies like Blackwater. I can't remember what Blackwater is called at this point. They've changed their name so many times that I just still call them Blackwater. Z and Academia or whatever, but um, Blackwater who we're talking about. Prince actually, and this is in the notes to the book, has been calling for a long time for the U.S. government to turn over not just more military functions to private military contractors, PMCs, but actually the entire Afghanistan war effort. It was like, we can do it more efficiently. So on that one point, I think Prince and I would probably be in agreement. Barry Eisler, turning over military, police, whatever, to the private sector brings in the mercenaries. And of course, mercenaries is what eventually brings down countries, private armies. Yes. It's a funny thing. I can go on and on about this, and I promise not to. But I'll, I'll just make one overarching point. One of the things that disturbs me about the current discourse in America, and there are a lot of things, but one of them is this. There are a lot of very important topics that people talk about as though there's no cost to the alternative. So, for example, maybe it's a good idea. I don't think it is, but let's just say for the sake of argument, it is a good idea for what would traditionally be thought of as mercenary outfits to gain more and more power and influence. Maybe there are advantages to that. There probably are advantages. There are some advantages to almost everything. But the people who are in favor of that transition don't want to talk about the costs and the risks. And you just brought one of those risks up, that it can undermine democracy and civilian rule. The conversation I want to have, of course, I have my substantive opinions about these things. I have come to certain conclusions about them. But what I'm most interested in is that we can have a conversation about these things, recognizing the costs, benefits, and risks of all the potential alternatives, not pretending those things don't exist. I'll give you one more very quick example because it's so near and dear to me, and I think it's the preeminent example of this philosophy, drug prohibition. 
Prohibitionists only talk about prohibition as though the policy is entirely free, as though it's some sort of law of physics, like it's just air, it's just there, it's God-ordained. And whatever benefits prohibition might offer to society, and I actually don't think there are any, but that's okay, whatever benefits it might offer, you cannot sensibly, sanely talk about the policy of prohibition unless you also talk about its unbelievable costs, its financial costs, its costs in ruined lives, devastated communities, destabilization of Mexico, the aggregation of vast surveillance and police and intelligence power by the government, the bleeding off of law enforcement resources and judicial resources, intelligence resources that could have been used for other things. Those are all the costs of a policy of drug prohibition. Maybe those costs are worth it. We should have that conversation, but we shouldn't pretend that those costs don't exist. Getting back to the Killer Collective, when your plot came together, at what point did you decide to bring in John Rain into what appears to be maybe a Livia Lone book? Or was it originally the two of them and then bring in Ben Trevin? And that means a large supporting cast from each of the series. It just grew. My previous book, is called The Night Market, and that was a Livia Dox mashup. Dox is from Rain's universe. And I got the idea for that because I was like, well, we last saw Dox in my short story, The Khmer Kill, and he was in Cambodia, and then Livia going back to Thailand to finish finding out what had really happened to her and her sister, who had been behind it, how it had been done. And I just got this wild hair of an idea of, well, what would happen if the two of them ran into each other? There's all oil and water in many ways. And the results were beautiful. I, I mean, I think so. I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't say that, I guess, in a way. But look, judge for yourselves. Uh, but I think it was a terrific story with great interaction between the two characters. So it was a natural evolution from that initial two-character mashup in the night trade uh, to what became a much more fuller-blown collective in The Killer Collective. It started with Livia and the notion of this investigation. It was a joint Seattle PD, FBI, child pornography investigation. And when it starts leading toward the Secret Service, some people come at her. She recognizes that what just happened, what she just survived, is above her pay grade. Does, that, does that mean that suddenly... You're going, well, I got to bring in docs, and if I'm going to bring in docs, I better bring in rain? Well, it, it wasn't. It's, it's a, an interesting question. I, I don't usually think that way when I'm writing. It, it's more organic. It'll start with an idea, and I keep playing with the idea in as realistic and compelling a way as I can and seeing where it goes. So it was really just a first step. I thought, okay, Livia's doing this thing, and then somebody tries to assassinate her, but she survives the attempt. She kills the would-be assassins, but she recognizes this is outside her realm, as, as competent as she is. This is outside her realm, almost of experience and knowledge. So I thought, okay, what would she do now? That's something I always ask about my characters. Knowing everything I know about her and everything that's happened to her in the previous books, what would she do? And it was a natural following the nitrate that she would reach out to Docs because that's his world. And he himself is a quite competent, quite competent operator. So she would reach out to Docs. What would Docs do? He would probably reach out to Rain because he has he really cares about Livia. There's a lot that's going on between them at this point. And then I thought, well, what, what would have happened if the people who wanted to get rid of the investigators had initially been looking for it to be done in as low profile a manner as possible? 
like a natural causes way. Well, they would have reached out to the premier natural causes assassin of all time, who's now trying to live in quiet retirement in Kamakura, Japan. That's John Rain. And he says no, because Rain doesn't kill women or children. He has a, he has a code. And so, okay, they have to go with a plan B, which is what they do. But then Rain and Docs close the loop. This is really just what we're talking about right now is a compressed version of the quite caffeinated walks I was taking at the outset of this book. And then this is what the conversations with myself and with my, my wife and agent, Laura Rennert, sounded like as, as we were fleshing out the plot. And then where does Ben Trevin come in? Trevin came in because there's a character named Larison who I love. He's um, Larison himself, another assassin, another black, a former black ops soldier, deeply damaged guy. Uh, not the most social character you've ever heard of. Originally, Larison is a Trevin Universe character. And then in 2011, I did a book called The Detachment, which was before I started writing Livia. And that was a Trevin Rain mashup. So Larison was in that book. Uh, the guy who essentially runs Ben Trevin at this point, uh, former special uh, forces colonel named Scott Hort Horton, a nod to uh, a writer I, I very much admire, Scott Horton. So Rain and Larison, Trevin, Docs, Horton. They'd all met before, back in 2011. And so then the question was, uh, how did the conspirators reach out to Rain? He's not an easy guy to find. And I thought, well, we've got this guy who's going to turn out to be the head of a, a huge uh, private military contractor outfit. The conspirators reached him. They want to outsource it. They want some deniability and a cutout. So he's doing this, and he knows he wants another cutout, too, because this is pretty sensitive. We're talking about killing a Seattle cop, an FBI, maybe one or two FBI agents. So he reaches out to Horton, and that's how Horton gets Exactly. And then Horton goes for rain. Exactly. And suddenly, everybody's in motion. Uh, Those must have been pretty serendipitous caffeinated walks where suddenly going, (laughs) holy cow. That's what's going to happen. Well, this is an interesting question. From my perspective in terms of what's going to make a great story, there certainly was some serendipity, right? Like you could, you could compare the plot of the novel to, Barry, what are the chances that they would have reached out to Rain? That sort of thing. But within the world of my books, it actually all makes perfect sense. And to the extent that there are any coincidences in the book, I feel comfortable saying that they all follow what I think should be every storyteller's rule of coincidences, that you can do any coincidence at all at the outset of a story. Coincidence could kick the whole story off. That's fine. If you want to use coincidences later in the story, at a minimum, they have to make things worse for your protagonists. Your coincidences can never solve problems. They can only create problems, especially at the beginning of the book. And all the at least arguably, uh, arguable coincidences that got the story in motion all happen at the beginning, and they all make things worse. If there's a coincidence in the middle or end, as we know from, say, Dickens, it suddenly feels contrived. Exactly. Exactly. It feels like a cheat. But you can do coincidence as long as it makes things worse, you, you, as you long can... as the evil guy is outside the door by chance. Something like that. And probably we've all seen that. There's a, you know what? There's a terrific coincidence that would be off the top of my head. One of the best I've ever seen that doesn't violate. In fact, it, it looks like it, it is the rule. Uh, Quentin Tarantino's movie, Pulp Fiction. There's 
an amazing scene where the Ving Rhames character and Bruce Willis just run into each other on the street. This is after Bruce Willis has ripped him off and Ving Rhames, the crime boss, has sent uh, Assassin's John Travolta's character to Bruce Willis' apartment to kill him. And like he's got all these things in motion. All his people are looking to kill Bruce Willis. And what happens? They just run into each other on the street in Los Angeles. Total coincidence. But that coincidence makes things infinitely worse and spins the plot in new directions. Didn't solve problems. It created them. And so it's a great coincidence. In the course of the book, a character gets killed. We won't say which one it is, but a major character. My George R. R. Martin moment. What prompted that, or did it just come, oh, this is going to happen? It's a great question. I don't have a great answer. It wasn't planned, I can say that. Once everything gets set in motion, and pretty much everything we've been talking about, about how I put together the story for the book, is okay, now things are set in motion. And from that moment on, yeah, I have to think about things and figure them out, but also the characters are carrying things along. That wasn't really intentional. It wasn't planned. It was just we got to a point in the book, and I saw where that was going to happen, and it felt right. I've done things like that before where on an emotional level I would have preferred not to, but it felt right in the story. And I think it's a good rule for novelists, at least a guideline for novelists to follow. That is, if it feels right in the story then you should do it. Well, I was thinking when Stephen King wrote Cujo, which right. has a very sad ending, part of the explanation for that was that if all of Stephen King's books end well, then there's no level of danger anymore. Yeah, that's right, which is part of the joy or call it angst of reading George R. R. Martin because you just never feel like there's any... I mean, my God, you kill Ned Stark... Nobody's safe. And then he takes it even further. I don't want to spoil anything for anyone. Cujo's been out for a while. It was The little boy didn't, didn't make it, right? I read yeah, that in college he, a long time ago. The little boy didn't make they it. He gave it a happy ending in the movie. I remember Dee Wallace, like she resuscitates him. Yeah, yeah. but in the book, yeah. the, the kid dies. Yeah. And the question is, why did you do that? Well, what Stephen King set up at that point, and of course people like Martin have taken it yeah. new levels. Yeah. Yeah. But what, what he set up at that point is when you're starting to read a Stephen King novel yes. any or short story, anything from then on out, you never know what the ending is going to be. So there's real danger. You're, you can't suddenly go, oh, it'll all turn out all right. Yeah. And yeah. that changes it. Yeah, I agree. So now afterward, Barry Eisler, you could conceivably kill off anyone. I hope people feel that way. Getting back to some of the material inside the book, there's something called, I think, the IAFIS. <laughs> yeah. Is that real? Of course. Uh, that and everything else I ever write about in my books is called out in the author notes at the end. That is the, uh, I'm, I'm going to be embarrassed not to be able to remember exactly what the, the abbreviation Integrated database or something. Fingerprint. It's the, yeah, the, the integrated automated fingerprint identification system or something like that. That's a huge FBI database of uh, fingerprints. So... Um, that's something that law enforcement can draw on if if someone catches a latent print someplace or there's a body or whatever, or you have someone without identification, you can try to match prints to what's in the system. Now, there's something else that's not in the book that I was that that took me to another level, which is that there was a story not long ago about how these ancestry yeah. websites yeah, yeah. 
that take your DNA could certainly turn it over and create a DNA database that the government could have. That is how the Golden State Killer was captured. And this would be a a premier example for me of the kind of conversation we should be having. Of course, catching serial killers is of vital interest to society. I don't think anyone would argue otherwise. But we should also be aware of the powers we're turning over to the government in the course of asking the government to protect the public from serial killers and other criminals. And yes, um, this is this is exactly how the Golden State Killer was found, by a resort to what you might have thought of would be a private DNA database. People are going there and just trying to find out, well, where, where do I come from? Where do my ancestors come from? How far can drones go at this point? You should read the, the one that's coming out in September that I just turned in, All the Devils. It's, it even it goes further. Here's the thing about drones, and, and this, is, this is probably in the author notes of Killer Collective. It definitely is in, in the book I just turned in, All the Devils. That one's a little bit more on my mind, being that I just finished it. In the early days of drones, we were talking about Yemen. You know, I, I, what I said, it was 2002 when uh, the, I think I might have said 2004, but it was 2002 when the uh, CIA blew up that Jeep in Yemen. And what they did was they took a surveillance drone, which was the state of the art at the time, and they almost literally bolted a couple of Hellfire missiles onto the wings to turn it into an assassination platform, rather a targeted killing platform. And from there, the advancement of drone technology has mostly been about how much firepower can you carry on the drone, how long can the the drone loiter over a target, how high up, how surreptitiously, things like this. What's going on now, the big technological push, has much more to do with miniaturization. Scientists have now solved problems that before were insurmountable because at, at an extremely small size, where you're getting into the insect realm, stabilization is one problem uh, that you run up against. That, as I understand it, a lot of that has been solved. Now, as we were saying before, that's what if you stay up on if you stay on top of these things by reading Wired magazine and other sources that I turn to, we know a certain amount, which leads to the question of what don't we know? What's top secret? What hasn't been reported? So we have drones as small as insects now. The next thing we're going to see is increased battery life. The smallest drones have to be run off a tether because we haven't solved the problem yet of like what keeps a fly powered for as long as a fly is powered. Anybody who's ever chased around a living room, oh my God. What I'm doing is I'm showing a hearing aid, which is very small, in my ear. Now, the way this fits in is the fact that a battery must be replaced every four days. Yeah, I'm not surprised. So going back to what you were saying about the drones, if this battery, which is probably close to state of the art, then when you're getting this small... There's not a whole lot you could do when it's powering a drone. So this is an area that's so far outside my realm of expertise. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have any meaningful opinions to contribute on how you increase battery life. But that's the challenge, to make the drones smaller and uh, less obtrusive while keeping them in the air for longer. And again, the conversation we as a society should be having isn't only about how gee whiz, now we can kill more high value terrorist targets using our smaller, stealthier drones, but also what the advent of such small, stealthy, uh, omnipresent drones means for democracy and privacy in America. It also adds another element, which is, of course, that it would be nice if my hearing aid lasted for a month instead of having to replace the damn 
batteries every four days. So this is one of the things we'll extrapolate about when we reach the point, as we I'm sure will, when your hearing aid lasts a month, even if there's nothing reported about insect-sized drones being able to loiter for, say, a day or a week at a time, we'll be able to surmise with a fair degree of confidence that that uh, level of technology has, in fact, been achieved. Which, when I pulled this out, you went, wow, because it's really small. But it's not perfected. But then if we go two steps further to what is going on in top secret world, the perfection may be there already. Sure. It's always going to be one step ahead. I'd like to change the subject, Barry Eisler. There was a movie called Rainfall in 2009 with Gary Oldman. Well, yeah, it was in theaters in Japan for a week or two and then DVD. The people who made the movie had the rights to my rain books. I think the way to understand the movie is to think of it as being inspired by uh, my first book, then called Rainfall, since retitled to A Clean Kill in Tokyo, because those rain titles were, those rain pun titles were just killing me. It's loosely based on my first book, A Clean Kill in Tokyo. And there's no way, I don't I have no idea if it's on, if it's streaming. Oh yeah, anything. you can find it. I get mail from time to time. People say like, oh, I saw your movie. They always say your <laughs> movie. And what I always say is it's not my movie. All credit or blame goes elsewhere. And what happened to the Keanu Reeves TV show from 2014? That one has fallen apart, which is a disappointment for me. I confess because I really would have liked to see Keanu Reeves play John Rain. I think he's a terrific actor. There aren't that many terrific actors who can really open a show and who look really like of mixed parentage, mixed white and Asian. That project really had a lot going for it, but everybody's got a sad Hollywood story and the very short version of that one is it just died in development hell. And what was the Dark Files? <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. I feel like you're, it's so funny to feel like I'm, well, my entire past is being unearthed in this interview. The Dark Files was a really interesting project. This is another one. Like, how do I make this short? It was a history channel. It wasn't intended as a pilot. It was a one-off, but the, the idea was that if it went well and the audience was there, it would be a kind of backdoor pilot to something more more general. And The Dark Files was, uh, I think it was a one-hour History Channel special examining the mythology and conspiracy theories surrounding the uh, former U.S. Army Air Force Base in Montauk, Long Island. Some of which, by the way, is the basis for the terrific Netflix show, Stranger Things. I mean, that, in fact, I believe the original title of that show was going to be Montauk. So there are a lot of allegations having to do with human experimentation and some that are really way out in public. Because human experimentation is like, that's just documented. I can go on and on about it. But uh, aliens and time travel, like those things are also wrapped up in the mythology of Montauk. And the purpose of the show was to try to do some sort of deep examination about what really happened there. The attraction to me of being one of the hosts on the show, it was a lot of fun, actually, um, making the show. I did it as a little bit of a lark because I just wanted to see what it would be like. It's not as though there was a ton of money, um, fame, or fortune in any of it. But it was interesting and fun. And what attracted me to it, and I talked about this a lot while we were filming, is this. The notion, the very phrase, conspiracy theory, is used widely in America to deposition things. That's a conspiracy theory. And how many times have we heard people giving the caveat before offering an opinion say, well, I'm no conspiracy theorist, but everybody's a little bit afraid of being called a conspiracy theorist. So people are often at, uh, at pains even to disclaim up front that they don't believe in conspiracy theories. 
So if you're the U.S. government, if you're a propagandist, if you can position something as a conspiracy theory, then you pretty much won the game. It'll never be taken seriously by the serious people, the sober, centrist, serious establishment media. And what I wanted to do with, uh, with the Dark Files was tease out what could really be real and even likely about some of the Montauk legends, mostly having to do with human experimentation by asking this question, look, is human experimentation in America, is that a conspiracy theory? Is that something that only Mengele and the Nazis did in Japan Unit 731? That's only something that terrible people did in other parts of the country a long time ago? No, it's really not. I, I can go on and on about this and I'll wrap it up. I'll just say this, like the purpose, the what was so satisfying and exciting for me to be on that to be part of that production was the opportunity to talk, to put the, the so-called conspiracy theories about human experimentation into real American history context. We interviewed some former prisoners of uh, now defunct prison outside of Philadelphia who were subjected to the most horrific human experimentation involving drugs, uh, caustic chemical agents on their skin. 40 years later, these gentlemen still suffer from terrible health effects by what was done to them unwittingly. They were never uh, recompensed, not that you could be recompensed for these things. And so being able to bring out their stories and give them their day to tell their stories while making the American people more aware of some of the horrors that the American government has perpetuated, like the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, for example, or radiation experiments using Quaker oatmeal given to children in orphanages, prisoners, soldiers, and orphans. It's always the same. Powerless people being preyed upon by some of the most august Ivy League credentialed members of society. All of that is real documented American history. It's not a conspiracy theory. I don't know what happened in Montauk, but I almost don't care. The rest of the stuff is true. That brings up two conspiracy theories that have been running around rampant. And the question is, and obviously I could probably get 40 minutes out of you on either of them, but the question isn't really are they real or are they not? The question is, should we be pursuing them? One, of course, is 9-11. Of course. And the other is flying saucers. So let me do the second one first. Flying saucers, <clears throat> I don't know. I will say this. Let me refer to George Carlin here. George Carlin has a hilarious, anyone can find it on Google, comparison of established religious beliefs and the way established religions are treated by the media and the way so-called UFO buffs are treated in the media. And he talks about that very term, UFO buff, immediately depositioned hobbyists. But he talks about the fact that some of the most carefully psychologically vetted, sober, competent people in American society, we're talking about Air Force pilots, experimental jet fighters, people who... I mean, have absolutely the opposite of any history of, of seeing things, delusions, any psychotic breaks or mental health problems or anything. These, were, these sightings have been reported by some of the most reliable people you can imagine. So why are we so quick to say, ah, conspiracy theory? That doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, in all the universe, what is the percentage of human knowledge for what is out there? <laughs> you can't even calculate a number that small. So that's one thing. And as far as 9-11 goes, this is the way I'd approach it. Look, was 9-11 an inside job? I don't know. And was the Kennedy assassination an inside job? I don't know. I'm, I don't even have uh, sufficient expertise going down that rabbit hole or technologically or anything. But this is the way I would want to have the conversation. For anyone who immediately rejects the idea of an inside job out of hand because the, the good men and women who govern us would never be capable of something like that. Look at the history 
of U.S. government lies. I have Stone said all governments lie. Nothing could be more axiomatic than that. Google something like Tonkin Gulf Resolution and see where that takes you. Google Iraqi weapons of mass destruction and see where that takes you. And my question is this. If the U.S. government is willing to lie about what becomes a cause for a war, in the case of Vietnam, a war that killed 3 million Southeast Asians, 58,000 U.S. service members, and that's just the dead. That doesn't include the blinded, the brain damaged, the burned, the crippled, the orphaned, the permanently psychological traumatized If the U.S. government is willing to tell those sorts of lies in pursuit of its geopolitical objectives, then my question is just, where do you think the line is? The U.S. government or a government would do that, but it wouldn't do this. Okay, let's have that conversation. Maybe you're right. But don't pretend that the U.S. government has never lied to the American public in pursuit of its geopolitical objectives, that it's never lied the U.S. public into a war, a war with horrific international and domestic consequences, because that would be a fantasy. John Rain in Graveyard of Memories is over in Vietnam in 1972. This puts him in his late 60s now. In Killer Collective, he's... Probably about 15 years younger in his behavior. <laughs> <laughs> it's the vitamin supplements. I once heard an interview with Bruce Springsteen. This is about 10 years ago. I've, I don't know how old Springsteen is now. He's eternal, I guess. But in the interview, the, uh, the interviewer said to him, you know, last we met, it's probably true for you and me too, something like, he said it was about 10 years ago. And at the time you were say 50 and you told me then that you were going to hang up your, you know, your spurs when you were 60, but now you're 60. So what's going on? And Springsteen laughed and said, well, I guess the number is now 70. And I guess something like that might be going on with rain. We'll see. <laughs> you know, in fiction, you can make people age at different ways, I guess. I I will add this. There's a difference between, in in my mind, between reality and realism. And reality isn't enough for a book because if it's not realistic, if you're trying to write realistic uh, political thrillers as I am, it doesn't matter that I can claim, well, that's reality. If it doesn't feel realistic, people will reject it. It is realistic that someone of Rain's age can be ferocious on the mat. When I was training at the Kodokan uh, Judo Center in Tokyo, I was pretty good, um, and I was at my physical peak at 29, and there were guys there in their late 60s who were animals on the mat. They couldn't do so much standing work anymore because their bodies couldn't take the break falls, but on the mat, they, they, could, they could use me to clean the mats, and that's reality, but will people find it realistic? That's something I'm up against and I have to take into account. Barry Eisler, this next book, who's in it? All the Devils. Yeah. All the Devils is uh, almost entirely Olivia book with, well, I shouldn't say that actually. There's Kanazaki, who's a CIA operative from Rain's universe, and Docs is also uh, a small but vital character in the book. And then after that, I guess you're already starting the caffeinated walk. <laughs> That's, I'm, I'm just about to get the copy edits back for All the Devils. That'll be an intense turnaround. And then we'll begin the caffeinated walks. Also, God's Eye View was kind of a one-off. That's the only one I've written so far that, up until now anyway, we'll see what happens, is a standalone. I really liked my deaf assassin in that book, Marvin Manis. I get a lot of a reasonable amount of mail about him. Is he going to come back? 
I don't think we've seen the last of Manus. And the God's Eye program itself, God's Eye, is the name of the vast domestic surveillance program that's at the heart of the book. God's Eye gets mentioned in subsequent books. So we know the universes are connected. It's just that the characters haven't uh, crossed paths to date. If you go to his website, which is... BarryEisler.com, B-A-R-R-Y-E-I-S-L-E-R.com. You, you can find the names of the earlier books. For sure. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>